When we think of transformed hearts, we know that that translates into transformed homes. And when we think of transformed homes, we don't think of perfect. We think of the word process, right? I'm so relieved that when you are um, envisioning getting with God and through Jesus starting to grow in your faith, He also doesn't let your heart and your home and your neighborhood stay stuck. There's transformation that occurs. And Yon mentioned that one of the things we envision here in our church family is that when, the, when you believe the gospel, there is transformation, that the transformation starts right in your heart with a new heart that's regenerated by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then that starts to kind of leak into and cause the transformation of the home. And uh, that is the vision that we share as a church. It's different from the American vision of what a home is. And there's probably a lot of ways to define this. I'm sure you could come up with your own description of what the vision is for the American home, but in large part, I could probably summarize it this way, that Americans have a vision that they would have a happy home. Whatever that means and however that looks to each individual family, it's probably true that they envision a happy home with successful kids who are energized by their own self-esteem. And the vision that we have to raise a gospel-transformed family is more than happy kids uh, with a gainful employment and a family that's contributing as good citizens in the world and that is kind to people. It's all that plus more is the vision for a gospel-transformed home. Is there more? And some of you might be on the other side where you're like, I'm at the stage where I'm trying to survive. My vision is not necessarily success. I have a vision of survival. Anybody? I won't ask, but um, more of you are nodding at that than the other description that I just had. Just, just fake it till you make it. Hopefully, we can get through this without um, any visits by the local police department here in my home. Uh, just trying to survive. In some cases, it's heartbreak, trying to survive the heartbreak. Um, but when people think of trying to survive, they're also kind of hoping that maybe the one day that they will be successful parents and that they will be able to raise a successful child and that that child will be free from restrictions and that child will be free from any kind of um, limits. That in America, when you raise a child that's free, that child is free to define themselves. And if you watch a lot of Disney, you'll notice that the child is supposed to be set free to overcome all the limits and restrictions, especially if the limits and restrictions are a stick-in-the-mud adult, dad or mom, that's in the way of them becoming everything that they were intended to be, right? Soaring into self-actualization and defining who they want to be and what they want to do, because in that world, you can do and be anything you want to. Limitless autonomy limitless individualism, and the highest value of self-actualization. I want to present to you that there's a biblical worldview for our homes that's different than that. It's different. It's deeper, and it's different, and it's not being perfect. I'm so relieved by that. I'm so relieved I don't thumb through the Bible and get to the home part and say, oh, perfect. That's discouraging. I guess I'll interest myself in something else. But God wants to help the process of transformation in your home if you're willing and able to let Him, and He can do that in us. 
Even building a Christian home has traps and pitfalls, right? Um, One of my favorite pastors and authors, his name is Scotty Smith, he says this about Christian homes. He says, I began my journey as a dad and I was more driven by fear than faith. Check this out. He goes on to say, I had a greater bent towards protecting my kids from the world rather than preparing them to live in the world. Isn't that good? He says, as the grace of God became more real to me, I repented, but then I overcorrected and I rejected legalistic pragmatism for a more progressive, laid-back parenting approach. I now grieve both of my approaches. What does he say? I grieved too harsh, too legalistic, and I grieved too progressive and too, um, too much license. Right? It's a tough balance. Anybody struggle with that balance? Anyone remember in your own home, your parents pick, kind of like picking a balance or landing on, not picking a balance, but landing off balance? And so God has helped us envision and has designed a way for us to contribute to a home that finds transformation and process in a healthy way that has a biblical worldview that helps, um, really helps us to learn transformation. So when you are joined to Jesus by your faith, this doesn't happen automatically, but when you believe the gospel, all aspects of the gospel, when you believe all aspects of the gospel, it works to transform your heart, it works to transform your home, and then it leaks into all of our neighborhoods where we live and go and work and play and study. The gospel transforms the purpose of my home. So, can I run? I'm going to run something by you. I got to stop asking you because I, I, I recognize you could be like, why does he ask? It's going to happen anyway. Silly, rhetorical. Let me show you um, where we're going to start with this because as we get through this series, we're going to kind of come across a few different purposes um, here. But check this out as a big idea for what God has for transformed homes. My family. And I don't mean by my family, I don't mean I have little ones in the house. I mean my family, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, in my home and in my home extended, my family can show how compelling it is to live under God's reign of love. My family in my home can grow to radiate and reflect the joy of knowing God. That's our big idea, that God has a reign of love and that when you belong to Jesus, it is compelling. You can demonstrate and show the world that it's compelling to live under His reign of love. And I mean that. If you're a brother or a sister, if you're an aunt or an uncle, if you're a parent or a grandparent, if you are willing to learn, this message series can help you navigate your family dynamics. And I bet you've discovered that for a lot of us, it's not difficult to be our best, the best version of ourselves outside the home. And then when we get home, we're like, I don't recognize myself. And people who love you are like, um, you should move out and live somewhere else. Because there's something that happens in our homes. But this series, it's my hope that, that it will inspire you and maybe instruct you even on how to navigate the dynamics of your family and also to even to anchor yourself in a turbulent family. Family. How can I navigate and how can I anchor myself? And grandparents, we can, we have the opportunity as grandparents even to um, help 
this generation's families, to help them envision and to help us envision what it could look like in our own homes. Like, I want to say something to my kids and my grandkids about what a home could look like, but I don't exactly know how to put it. I don't know how to put words on it. I'm hoping to inspire you to be able to see and articulate what it could look like in a biblical worldview rather than just sounding like you're meddling in someone else's business, even though you gave birth to them. So this series might even help you. So how do we show this? How is it that we show how compelling it is to live under God's reign of love? Well, let's start with this. We start in that we get to show that God's rule is good. God's rule is good. I already know that there's a word up on that screen that would make most American freedom-loving citizens cringe. And it isn't God. It's this word here, rule, right? If you are a freedom-loving citizen here in the United States, one of the things that you probably love about it is liberty. Liberty for everybody to live free of the government's rule. There is a rule that is given to us that is above and beyond the government's rule that doesn't bring um, any kind of restraint. It actually launches us into a life of freedom and joy. And that maybe goes without saying is God's rule. But it doesn't sound like good news in our culture, right? You don't lead by saying, so um, I want to ask about your faith and whether or not you know God. He's got a good rule and He wants you to submit to it. You don't start there, right? But we as Christians, um, when we think of these rules, it doesn't have to be rule. The word rule doesn't have to make us cringe, We want to be free. We don't want someone else ruling over us. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. So how can the rule of God be good news? Surely God's rule is bad news, right? Of course not. This was the lie of the serpent who um, took the form of, uh, as Satan took the form of a serpent. What does he say to Adam and Eve? And he says, God wants to rule over you, but you don't have to submit to his rule. You can rule for yourself. You can make your own rules up. You can define good and evil, and you can have all the knowledge of what's good and evil, and you can rule and reign over your own life. That was the original lie, was that the rule of God was somehow harsh, and you, and you could, in fact, escape that and live for yourself and ultimately live happy. That's the original lie. You don't have to submit to God's rule. And Adam and Eve, um, of course, were kind of led to believe that God's a tyrant. He just wants to restrict me, and He wants to limit me. His rule is instead, what God was offering Adam and Eve was a rule that was freedom, that was blessing, love, full life, justice, and peace. In fact, the gospel is not bad news. The gospel is good news as we submit and learn to uh, live under God's rule. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, and in chapter 6, he's continuing on with this theme that he writes in chapter 5 where he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. So how do children of God like us, how do we walk in love in response to what Jesus accomplished on our behalf? 
Well, what are the implications of the gospel for parent-child relationships? Paul describes that in Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, in our homes, whether we've grown up in a healthy home or some kind of hellish home, when you belong to Jesus, you can be imitators of Him, and you can live in the kind of love that He lives, and it's going to translate and start right in the home. What does he say? Here's what he says. It starts with this. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, he addresses the children. He says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. It doesn't say obey your parents because they're always right, although we know that that's true. I got you, parents. I got you. (laughs) I'm with you. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, meaning you are now submitted to the Lord and He's put these parents over you and so now obedience comes along with belonging to God. For this is the right thing to do, honor your mother and your father, this is the first commandment, with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. So what does obeying and honoring parents have to do with living a long life? Well, this is actually a quote, Paul's quoting Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, there's a passage of Scripture where the Lord is speaking to His people, and He's basically saying through Moses, you need to be careful to obey. And if you obey all the commandments and you don't waver left and right from the commandments, you're going to live long in the land of prosperity, uh, milk and honey. You're going to flourish, and you're going to multiply, and all the nations are going to look to you as God's people, and you're going to be full of blessings that overflow, and people who bless you are going to be blessed, and people who curse you are going to be cursed. And Paul's quoting that, saying, don't forget, we were instructed by God that if you submit to His rule and His commandments and you're obedient, things will go better for you. Does that mean bad things don't happen to these people? Of course not. Does that mean there aren't consequences for bad choices? Of course not. Does that mean that there aren't afflictions that land and fall? It doesn't. It means generally if you live live submitted to the commands of God, you will find yourself thriving. You'll find yourself nourished. You'll find yourself free and learning to live in joy He describes it this way, living long and prosperous lives in the land that you are about to enter and occupy, the land of Canaan. So that's what Paul is referring to here. It's a throwback to to Deuteronomy. And God's people would live a life of blessing in God's land if they obeyed God. And anything else outside of obeying God would lead to chaos and confusion and ultimately destruction. And, and, And ultimately, if they reject God, what happens? They would not live long in the land. They would be exiled. And of course, if you know the story, what happened? They were exiled. Exiled because of their disobedience, their spiritual adultery, and rebellion. So, welcoming God's rule leads to blessing. And this is so important if you are growing up in our culture right now and you're starting to embrace the idea of of complete autonomy of your own life, doing whatever and being whatever you want. This is important. This is in direct conflict with that as we discover that as believers and belongers to Jesus, we actually sign up for and submit ourselves to a new rule, and it's not self-rule, autonomy. What is it? It's God's rule. That's a big shift. That's a big exchange. That's a big sacrifice. In families, we get to learn to live alongside one another. It's in families that we negotiate differences and express our views while tolerating other opinions. Home, our homes, are for more than just building happiness. Of course, God would have more to it than just bringing happiness. Now, on the other hand, rejecting God's rule always brings judgment. 
We see it vividly in the Old Testament, rejecting God's rule as judgment, and that's true in families. When people and families live for themselves, what's the result? When there are people living autonomously for themselves, you have families full of chaos and confusion and conflict and destruction. So it's in our family's best interest that we learn what God wants to teach His people. What does God want to teach His people? God wants to teach His people this. Check this out. One of my favorite authors, Tim Chester, says, the family is the place where you learn to submit to authority instead of living for yourself. I see you parents jabbing your teenagers. I see it. I already know what's happening. I already know what's happening. I'm, I'm hoping that I can disconnect you from my words here for a second, zoom back, and I want you to think about the family that belongs to God. What is the purpose of that family? Imagine this, that God has designed for a way for us as human beings to be in a particular secure location where we learn to submit to authority instead of living for yourself. And this is a part of the transformation that occurs. Our kids are facing a choice, submission to authority or selfish autonomy, right? I mean, Really quick, humor me on this. Raise your hand if, you're, if you raised a child. Raise, raise your hand if you have a child or you raised a child. Um, leave your hands up if your child naturally submitted to your authority and was like, as you wish. Incredible. You guys, you're embarrassing Amy. You're embarrassing Amy. Do you guys remember Wesley on, on um, The Princess Bride? What did he say to Princess Buttercup? Every command, what did he say? As you wish. And then down the hill he goes. One of my favorites. So listen to this. When our humans are born, and they are born to parents and they exist in our home, instinctively they have the seed of Adam they have rebellion in their hearts, and they're going to live for themselves, by themselves, self-reliantly and independently of God. And then these huge creatures slide into their life called parents and grandparents. And the parents and grandparents start saying to them, hey, I'm going to give you something that I want you to do, and you're going to submit to my authority. And these creatures called children say, no, uh, no, 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 let me get something straight here. I know I'm only one, but I'm doing my own thing. I'm doing my own thing. That is normal and natural, but in God's brilliance, in God's magnificent creative design, and in His wild passion to help you live free and full of joy, He said there is a way for you to experience this freedom and joy that you are looking for, but it isn't going to be living for yourself. It's going to be learning to submit to authority that I put in your home, and I've called them mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, and in some cases, aunt and uncle and so on. It's God's design. It's what He envisioned. And I'm sure I could, we could probably spend an entire um, morning on this, that if you consider what it looks like when you start to see um, a person or a family or children start to emerge without learning to submit to authority in the home, you can expect chaos, conflict, and destruction. So... Um, I appreciate that quote by Tim Chester, and, and I found it to be consistent with a transformed home. 
Our kids are facing a choice, submission to authority or selfish autonomy. And we can even teach kids that they are not the center of our universe. They are not the center. When we're teaching kids that they're not the center of the universe, we are not saying you are not valuable. We are not saying that we don't love you. What we're saying is, hey, I got news for you, toddler and teenager, grade school child, and eventually who knows how long. I got news for you. There is a world... You're not at the center of it. You are a part of a family and you revolve around the union of the marriage. And you revolve around as a part of a bigger and better concept called family. And of course, by investing in our marriage relationship, we can teach our kids that you're not the center of the universe. This marriage relationship is the center of your world. And I know for a lot of us, there's a barrier to building and investing in our marriages. We're hyper-invested in our child's happiness. We're overextended in keeping our kids successful and taking advantage of all the opportunities. Um, And in some cases, it's just a matter of our marriage is prioritized lower, or it might even be more difficult than just prioritizing our kids. So where do our kids learn submission? They learn it in the family. And in the second section, uh, in this section of Ephesians that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says our different roles in life are to reflect God's roles in our lives. So parents are a gift to children to teach them how to live under authority. And kids, what are you learning? If you've got strict parents, what are you learning at home? You're learning to submit to authority. When my parents would say to me, this is what we want you to do. And I would say, I don't get it. Why are you demanding that I do that? And they would say to me, because I said so. I was not an angry child, but man, did that just spark some frustration and anger. Because I said so? And I would never say this out loud, but that is the dumbest explanation for anything I've ever heard in my life. Now, I don't think that, as a parent now, I don't think that's a wise explanation to the child, but I don't think that's a wrong explanation. Why don't I think that's a wrong explanation? Because that's what parents are there for, to be authoritative and to, it doesn't help build convictions in the kids and so on, it's, you know, there's better ways, but it's not wrong. And it's not wrong because the role that they have to teach kids to live under authority. So that means, kids, what are you learning from your strict parents? What you're learning is to submit to authority. Instead of living for yourselves, you're learning to submit to mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, or as we say in my home, adult authority. Adult authority is a means by which our kids are learning to submit. So um, this is important. So if you're a parent here, this is especially relative, I think, relevant for you, learning to establish your God-given authority is, this is important, learning to establish your God-given authority with your kids, and this gets harder and harder as they get older, I think, as I kind of perceive this, but your God-given authority, as you learn to establish it, it's your first step, your child's first step in learning to accept God's authority. I don't think we can be surprised if our kids don't accept our authority, and then later on, they don't accept God's authority. Does that make sense? Does that seem to make sense? So the heart learns to submit to authority in the home, and then we pass along, of course, the idea that they submit to God's authority. Um, So uh, we're obviously then focused on something important, authoritatively teaching kids to obey adult authority in the home. And 
What exactly is obedience? Here's another quote I want to get you because I think a lot of you, I've heard from you over the years, and here's one of the things that you found to be true. Obeying parents is willing submission to authority. And here's Paul Tripp's version of this. Without delay, without excuse, and without challenge. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is important, right? Because if we're thinking of authority in the home as God's authority over us, we're also thinking that... um, Obedience that is delayed, obedience that is using excuses, and obedience that's using challenge is just another version of disobedience. It's the way it is when God is instructing us to do something. It's no different when our parents or adult authority in the home is teaching us to do something. We're primarily training them to submit to authority. And of course, we know that demanding obedience is not um, abusive, We're not talking about when we're establishing our authority. We're not talking about damaging a a child's self-esteem. And it also doesn't have to break their spirit. It also doesn't have to hurt their feelings or disrupt their self-expression. Taking authority in the home with our little ones is a role that God has created for us. And if you do it, it doesn't have to cost them their self-esteem, their identity, and it'll cost them maybe um, having all the good vibes that the kids want, but kids aren't being disciplined for being immature and developing child. They're disciplined for something more. They're not acting like a kid and then getting disciplined. They're not overtired and then getting disciplined. Instead, why? What are they being disciplined for? This is important. We show that God's rule is good this way. We discipline willful disobedience and rebellion. Willful disobedience and rebellion. Something I've learned over the past 25 years of parenting is I needed a simple way to remember what is the focus of my parenting. How do I, how do I, what am I focusing on if I'm trying to discipline willful disobedience and rebellion? This was helpful for me because I realized that discipline is required with willful disobedience and rebellion, not constantly because kids aren't acting their age or all the other ways that they can kind of get out of line. But something I learned over the last 20 years, a simple way to remember kind of the most important goals of, of, of doing this is something that I um, want to just mention here called the five C's. This is in your notes. If you're following along on the app and you are using the digital version, it's in your notes. But I'm going to touch on these and kind of skim right through them. Um, this is the part where I say, In my experience, when I think about 25 years of parenting, all the good that I've done and learned and some of the bad that I've done and learned, I've kind of synthesized five major C words that go in progression that have been helpful to me. I don't think I'm going to take the time with them today. But if there's time and if, there's, if it fits in the right place in the, in the Scripture text over the next couple of weeks, maybe we'll... Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to flash these by you and focus on them perhaps some other time. The first step in disciplining willful disobedience and rebellion is clarifying expectations. Clarifying. Before getting to the disobedience and the rebellion, clarifying what are the expectations of God, what are my expectations, what are the expectations here in the home, and uh, this is really, really a starting point no matter what, right? Secondly is correction. This is expectation redirection. This is like, oh, you may have forgotten that I clarified what the expectations are, but now it's time to redirect the way that you're behaving and the things that you're saying because, don't forget, I've clarified what the expectations are, and then I'm going to give you some reminders along the way, and that is correction. In our house, it sounded like this, uh, 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 uh. And my 22-year-old's like, okay, that's enough. All right. I mean... Please. 
That's what it sounded like. Um, And then, consequences for what? For willful disobedience and rebellion, operating in their own authority. Operating in their own authority meant that, all right, it's consequence time. It doesn't mean this is, now it's time for angry lashing out of all of my life's frustrations and now I get to take a swing (laughs) because I've been provoked. This simply means, all right, now it's time we're going to talk and walk through consequences. And one of the things that's amazing, every time in a life of a believer, on a separate note, when there were consequences to our bad behavior, our disobedience and rebellion to God, he didn't pull away from us, he went in there with us. And the Holy Spirit was with King David while he was sinning, while he was repenting, and while he was asking for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit was right there with him, walking him through it. And we'll talk about what that looks like um, in the future together in one of our next messages. And then another step here is contrition. Loving restoration, humble exploration of God-given parental authority, right? This is a broken, warm-hearted conversation, oftentimes with physical affection, and it's um, in the willingness to confess and repent for mistakes. That means the child's mistakes, and guess who else gets to take advantage of the contrition stage? Mom and dad get to say, I didn't, I didn't handle that right. I, um, I missed it. Um, I didn't um, respond the way I should have. And then another step here is coaching. So this is addressing and challenging heart motivations and restoration, helping uh, your child discover they're not the center of the world. So five C's that have helped me, and I hope if you're babysitting, raising kids, you have grandkids that come over, whatever, I hope that those five C's at least spark something in you to consider. Um, And this is what we discover. We discover that parents are designed to model God's good, liberating, and just rule. Gods get to model that. We adults recognize that the kids are watching. And all of us who are parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and adult authorities in our home, it is good to live under authority, and we are God's children submitted to His authority, and we're modeling that for our kids. So, um, secondly, and lastly, show that God's rule is gracious. What is a transformed home? It shows that God's rule is good. We embrace it. And then the family at home, we get to show that God's rule is gracious. Paul is writing to all the adult children now, and here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. All the adult kids, here's what he says. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. So God's rule is not only good, it's also gracious. And... In this way, through Jesus, God makes it possible for his enemies to become his friends. How does that happen? Through God's grace, he makes it possible for his enemies to become his friends. How does he do that? Through his grace. Well, what does grace mean? It means unmerited favor. God shows favor to us, and it's undeserved, it's unmerited, and it's unearned. He does it because he's gracious. And how can this passage here, how can this passage help us show that God's rule is gracious? Well, check this out. When you, an adult child, honor your parents, especially when it's undeserved, especially when it's undeserved, it shows God's rule is gracious. 
That means that in a Christian home where the gospel is at work in your heart, no matter whether you have had a set of parents who have built you up or knocked you down, perhaps they have uh, lifted you up, perhaps they have encouraged you, or in some cases, maybe um, they have hurt you. It still allows God to glorify Himself and show that His rule is gracious when adult children honor their parents. And by the way, if um, you're involved with adults in your family, in your home, and there's abuse and there's lifelong pain and suffering and hardship in those relationships, I certainly encourage you to walk into and walk through some important Christian counseling where the truth begins to bring freedom and healing to you. Separate from that, um, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that when, when Paul says, honor your mother and father, this is what God expects. It's, it's our ability to say, I'm not going to make my parents, as an adult, earn honor from me. If they've made mistakes, if they said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, raised me in the wrong side of the tracks, I am going to continue to honor them separate from whether or not they deserve it. Why? Because in my home, I'm going to show that God's rule is gracious. Jesus tells this story about a family, Luke 15. If you get a chance to read this, this is, a, this is one of the, it's, a, it's tremendous. It's been portrayed in so many different ways. But Jesus tells a story of a family in which the younger son rejects the father's authority. And he basically um, hijacks his own inheritance and goes off and he shames the family name, doing his own thing, living for himself living for his own glory, out from under the rule and authority of his own father in his own family name. Eventually, he um, discovers that that didn't make him free, that didn't even make him happy. That he ends up um, with the, the pigs, wishing that he could eat even food that was served to the pigs at his father's um, home. This particular son decides to return to his father and ask if he could just become a servant because he had squandered his, um, his favor with his family. But his father, in, in a fairly undignified way, his father runs to his son, arms open wide, and some of you know the story, and he doesn't stop there. He throws a celebration party for him, and he starts saying things like, bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the best food that we have. And he honors his son with an extravagant party to welcome him home. So here's the question. What is Jesus teaching in that story? What is, teach, what is Jesus teaching us about our heavenly Father? Here's what he's teaching us, that God is a gracious Father who welcomes wayward children. If you have a wayward child in your family... If you have a wayward sibling in your family, if you yourself might be the wayward one who have no idea how you ended up here today, don't forget, here's what you will discover about God, and here's what we could discover through our gospel parents and our gospel family, that God's rule is gracious, and He is ready and able and willing to do all that's needed to welcome you home even though you don't deserve it, even though you haven't earned it, and even though it's not merited, God is a gracious God and He welcomes home wayward children. So, that's helpful for us. It's helpful for us because oftentimes our home can feel like a battle and we end up with estranged family members. 
right? And sometimes that battle starts early. And the enemy in the battle can be our terrible two-year-old. Terrible twos, meaning they've just plopped their dinner on the floor, but not the first time, the forever time, over and over. And it might be our 15-year-old who just slammed the door again on our face. I'll never forget my first encounter with a rebellious child right to my face. It was a little one. My, the child that did this will remain nameless. I remember walking down the end of the hall and into the child's bedroom, and I kneeled down and I looked my beautiful, precious gift that came from the Father in heaven to our home to bring joy to us. And this child was disobeying, repeatedly rebelling, and I made it known. First of all, it starts like this. This is a proverb. There is foolishness in your heart because you're a child. And God has put me here in the home to drive that foolishness out. And this child started to scrape their heart and said, no, there's not. All right, I'm going to give you a pass on this one. Gave, her, gave the child... It's still 50-50, friends. It's still 50-50. So, so I, I look the beautiful child in the face and I say, you will do what daddy asked and go to sleep. No more words out of your mouth. Something to that effect. This child will correct me later as to what was exactly said. But, and eye to eye, and this child picks up their beautiful head, looks me in the eye and goes, eh this far away from my face. I am a very laid-back person. I am not easily triggered or angered. And I went from zero to 200 in a split second. And I thought to myself, if I don't get up and get down and tag my wife, we're going to have a situation. We're going to have ourselves a neighborhood emergency situation here. <laughs> I could not believe how that felt to be disrespected this close to my face or this far away from my face. And it felt like, in one small form, that was the beginning of a lifelong battle with the heart of a human being. A lifelong battle. And in that battle, it's like over time, right? Two years old is one thing, 15-year-olds is, is another thing, and when there's all kinds of animosity and, 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 and conflict, um, even with a flawed or, a f or maybe even a failed parent up above, how are we dealing with it? What am I supposed to do? How can fathers reflect more of God's rule in our homes? Look what Paul says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline instruction that comes from the Lord. What kind of discipline and instruction, which I like to just call coaching, what kind of, what is, what comes from the Lord? Grace. Grace does. Instead of provoking them by the way that we treat them. And of course, we know kids get angry, right, because they're being disciplined. You take away something that they want and they get angry. This isn't the, the anger that comes from discipline. It's the anger that comes from the way they're being disciplined with harshness, um, maybe even intimidation. Um, so, the default approach to parenting. This is so important. The default approach to parenting. If you get in situations and you're thinking to yourself, I don't really don't know how to react here. This is a terrible situation in my home with my siblings, my parents, my kids. I don't know how to home. Uh, I don't know how to react. Look at this. Our job is to show them what our Father in Heaven is like. 
You just, we, we just start to think, how does God treat me? What are, what are the ways that he has functioned? And over and over and over again, over again, here's what I have learned. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not his harshness. He disciplines those whom he loves, but it's kindness that leads to repentance. So it's possible to be lovingly parenting and, and disciplining children who are rebellious and disobedient and do so in a way where there is a level of kindness. And we'll talk more about that for sure. God treats people in a way they don't deserve. And transformed homes prioritize honor, and they esteem every single human being's dignity, value, and worth. So, um, it's my hope that you can get some um, meaningful, helpful handles and that some of this starts to take root in your heart as you think, wait, I've got a family and the purpose of my family is to show that God's rule is good and to show that His rule is gracious as well. And our kids will experience uh, the gospel as they see God's grace at work in our own lives, right? It is contagious. You don't produce what you say, you reproduce who you are. Is grace vital and sweet to us? Or is it a theological category that we hear about and talk about in church? Is Jesus our heart treasure or is he just a religious add-on to our lives? Something that we're trying to juggle with everything else that's demanded of us. Do we love other people who don't look like us or act like us? Don't live up to our standards? Is somehow our faith become us versus them, the good guys versus the bad guys? Our kids inherit all of these things and absorb all these things. Do they see the gospel at work between us and our spouses as we humble ourselves, as we repent, as we aim for reconciliation? Children need to hear us say to them, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And what happens? Our kids learn how to repent. They learn humble confession and repentance rather than learning that if you're a parent, you're always right. It's quite possible they need, us to, they need to hear us say, I am so sorry that I missed your heart. I dumped all my anger on you. I dumped my frustration on you. And also I have fears that I dumped on you. I can tell you this, uh, uh, a real confession. In my heart, I am the worst version of myself when I'm afraid. When I'm afraid that something is out of the... Um, it's off the rails or it isn't going to be able to be repaired, I get fearful and my worst version. And then ultimately it ends with, please forgive me. And in so doing, we're showing that in our home, we are demonstrating that God's rule over us is gracious, not harsh, legalistic, self-righteous. So it's a new target, transformed home. A new target that says your number one aim as a family and parent is to show how great it is to live under God's reign of love. And we get to demonstrate that together. Would you pray with me, church family? Um, God, we need you. We depend on you. We are grateful for the instruction that comes from your word that helps us envision what you've designed for us and how you've designed it to be. And now as we prepare to recognize, remember, and receive your broken body and your loving shed blood, we pray 
that you would move us out of stagnation towards transformation. We pray for our homes, our families. We pray for our moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, aunts and uncles and everyone in between. We pray that you'd start to activate this in us. Showing that your rule and reign in our homes is good and showing that it's gracious. And we know that you have good things planned for us. We thank you today for doing that. Stir our hearts as we remember your loving sacrifice together. We pray in Jesus' name.